You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 275th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. January 1st, 1863 was a defining day in the Civil War. It was the day Abraham Lincoln changed the entire basis of the conflict by declaring that all persons held as slaves within areas still in rebellion would be Quote, thenceforward and forever free. Lincoln's historic declaration struck a blow not only at the Confederate war effort, but at the society the Confederacy represented and defended. Lincoln released another document that same day, which also struck a blow at the Confederacy, but received little attention beyond the parties involved. It was a bill admitting West Virginia into the Union as the 35th state. While the Emancipation Proclamation was an instrument aimed at ending slavery, the bill admitting West Virginia permitted her to join the Union as a slave state. The release of these two documents on the same day was among the more intriguing paradoxes of Lincoln's administration, and is among the least known or understood events of that momentous period of history. Like the Emancipation Proclamation, West Virginia statehood was the culmination of a series of extraordinary maneuvers which reached back to the Secession Convention that was convened in Richmond in February of 1861. Virginia's Secession Convention first met on February 13th in response to the actions of the Deep South slave states that had announced their formal withdrawal from the Union. Attending the convention in the state capital of Richmond were 152 delegates, representing the three broad regions which comprised the Old Dominion, the Tidewater-slash-Piedmont, the Valley, and the Trans-Allegheny. At first, anti-secession sentiments were strong among the 152 delegates in attendance. In the beginning, 80 delegates, mostly from the Valley and Trans-Allegheny counties, opposed leaving the Union. This majority was tenuous, though, and as the days passed, pro-secession pressure from the Tidewater delegates increased. 
As Lincoln's inauguration drew ever closer, the mood of the convention started to shift. One by one, those opposed to secession were changing their position. By the time Lincoln took the oath of office, his remarks claiming the Union perpetual and that secession was nothing more than an insurrection tipped the balance in favor of the convention's secessionists. The firing on Fort Sumter on April 12th had forced the convention to go into secret session in an effort to keep hotter heads under control, but Lincoln's call for troops on April 15th drove the final nail into the coffin of the anti-secessionist. Two days later, on April 17th, the delegates adopted Virginia's Ordinance of Secession by a vote of 88 to 55, with nine delegates not voting. Forty-two of the 55 votes opposing the ordinance were from the Trans-Allegheny and Upper Valley region of the Old Dominion. As these anti-secession delegates from the western part of the state left the convention, they were greeted by a hostile and howling crowd that threatened them with physical harm. G.M. Porter, one of the western delegates, wrote to his wife that night, telling her, quote, It was the darkest hour I ever saw. God seems to have deserted us. While Virginia's Ordinance of Secession had been approved by the convention, it still had to be ratified by a public referendum scheduled for May 23rd, still one month away. However, the referendum would prove a sham, and secessionists began moving immediately to secure the state's claim to federal property and align the Old Dominion with the Confederate government. None doubted where Virginia was casting her fate. At the same time, other Virginians were moving to secure their interests. You see, the 50 western counties in the Valley and the Trans-Allegheny were strong for the Union and bore natural animosities toward their eastern Tidewater cousins. Differences in geography and culture between the eastern and western regions had long caused political conflict. Western rivers flowed north and west, strengthening ties of commerce and culture with Pennsylvania and Ohio rather than with the Tidewater. The biggest bones of contention were slavery and legislative representation. Each Virginia county got two representatives in the House of Delegates. That gave control to the east, where there were far more counties. Eastern Virginia also enjoyed the majority of senatorial districts. Suffrage, or voting rights, was exclusive to property owners, and absentee land speculators owned much of the real estate in the western counties. Many Easterners felt the rugged West was fit only for half-wild barbarians. They agreed with Benjamin Watkins Lee, a politician from south of Richmond, who sniffed, quote, What real share, so far as intellect is concerned, could the peasantry of the West be supposed to take in the affairs of the state? The East sprawling plantations employed extensive slave labor. The small farms of the mountains did not, so slaves in the West were primarily found on larger farms along river valleys and in Kanawha County's salt and coal mines. 
By and large, Western farmers, craftsmen, and laborers believed slave labor only denied them opportunities and depressed their wages. By 1829, the howls for their own state from the Western counties grew loud enough to force a constitutional convention. The Westerners demanded that legislative representation be based on white population, since the West's white population had swollen nearly 370% between 1790 and 1829, while the East had declined. They also wanted to disconnect voting rights from property ownership, and for good measure they sought to do away with the system that required voters to speak their choices aloud in front of witnesses. And come on, let's also establish free public schools for all white children. Easterners were horrified that politician Benjamin Watkins Lee said that the thought of separating voting rights from property ownership would be, quote, the most crying injustice ever attempted in any land, end quote. And secret voting? Well, no good can come from that. As for free schools in the West, financed by taxpayers in the East, that was just absurd. The 1829 convention changed little beyond modestly expanding suffrage. What it did do, though, was reinforce the Westerners' perception that Richmond was where their tax money went and where laws were written to benefit the Eastern aristocracy. Westerners refused to cease agitating for change, and finally, in 1850, Easterners finally agreed to a new constitutional convention and consented to a number of reforms. The governor and other state and local officials would henceforth be chosen by direct vote of all white males over 21, regardless of property ownership. And in the first direct election, Virginians, for the first and only time, chose a Westerner as governor, Joseph Johnston a slave owner from Harrison County. The two houses of the legislature were given equal power, with apportionment for the House based on white population. That meant the West got 83 delegates, the East 69. Meanwhile, in the Senate, the East got 30 districts to the West's 20. Cheers should have echoed throughout the mountains after these victories. But the new constitution also changed the tax laws, and not to the benefit of the Westerners. For example, white men would pay a head tax. Merchants were taxed via a licensing system. And all property would be taxed at average market value, except slaves. Slave owners would pay no taxes on slaves younger than 12. All other slaves would be taxed at a fixed amount equal to the tax on $300 worth of land, and land was taxed at a lower rate than other kinds of property, such as livestock. That meant a farmer in the West paid more in taxes for his cows than a plantation owner in the East paid on his slaves. Needless to say, the new tax system, um, detracted from the Westerners' delight with the other constitutional changes to put it mildly.
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If we fast forward to the spring of 1861 once again, we find that the secession ordinance was the last blow for many Western Virginians. As their initial shock over the secession convention's vote faded, members of the Western delegation returned home and went into caucus, where they decided to work towards defeating the ordinance in the upcoming May referendum. Smarter heads, however, concluded that such a defeat was impossible and instead began planning for secession of their own, a move some felt was long overdue. On May 1st, John Hay, one of President Lincoln's secretaries, wrote in his diary, Yesterday I read a letter from prominent unionists of Western Virginia asking help from the government in resisting the coercion of the eastern and rebellious portion of the state. Their plan is to endeavor to remove the state government from Richmond, west of the mountains, or, failing in that, to cut themselves off from the eastern district or, rather, by remaining in the Union, let the eastern portion cut itself off. While Lincoln chose not to pledge support in writing at that time, he left the, quote, door open for future negotiations, end quote. The delegates were persuasive enough, however, that Secretary of War Simon Cameron saw to it that 5,000 muskets, quote, were promptly dispatched to the Unionist of Western Virginia. We should probably take a minute to point out that the um, commonly accepted understanding of what comprised the region known as Western Virginia had evolved slowly over many years. You see, the western border of the original state of Virginia terminated in the Appalachian Mountains, which ran to the Ohio River. The Appalachians here in Virginia consisted of three regions, encompassing the Blue Ridge Mountains to the east, the Allegheny Mountains to the west, and lying between the two, the Great Shenandoah Valley. The area that early on was referred to as Western Virginia originally began on the eastern slope of the Blue Ridge and took in the entire area to the west, 
including the Valley and the Alleghenies. However, by 1860, this unofficial boundary had shrunk to where it no longer included the Blue Ridge or the Valley, but began on the rugged eastern slopes of the Alleghenies and included only the mountainous area bounded on the west by the Ohio River. Still, it was a significant portion of the state. The western counties accounted for 32% of the white population, 25% of the land area, and almost 100% of the mineral resources of the state. The reaction in the western counties to the adoption of the secession ordinance was immediate and overwhelming. In Clarksburg, the city of Stonewall Jackson's birth, 1,200 people met in a hastily called convention and resolved that each of the western counties appoint delegates to meet in the city of Wheeling on May 13th and determine what course of action to take in the event the statewide referendum approved secession. The first Wheeling Convention, as it came to be known, met for three days in May, during which time the groundwork was laid for a second convention should the secession referendum pass. Several members of the Wheeling Convention called for immediate separation from Virginia, believing this was the best way to resist passage of the secession ordinance. Others called for the establishment of a new provisional government to represent Virginia by declaring the existing pro-secession state government in Richmond to be null and void. But cooler heads prevailed, and the delegates finally agreed to hold a special election on June 4th so that the people of the western counties could elect representatives to a new convention to be held in Wheeling on June 11th, after the statewide secession vote was tallied. This postponed any official action on the part of Western Virginia until after the May 23rd referendum. It also allowed the pro-Union forces of the Western counties time to organize and to begin work to secure the support of the Lincoln administration in Washington. Unionists knew such support would be vital to any action ultimately taken by Western Virginia. The Western Virginia Unionists worked to defeat the referendum scheduled for May 23rd, but few people doubted that the secession ordinance would be approved. And in fact, on May 23rd, Eastern Virginians endorsed secession by a vote of 122,716 to 8,412. The votes from more than 30 western counties weren't included, though, because it was claimed conditions didn't allow for the final tabulations to be sent to Richmond in time. The governor, John Letcher, initially estimated a 4-to-1 ratio against secession in western Virginia, which turned out to be too high. The final tally for the western counties was set at 34,677 against and 19,121 for, which brought the true statewide vote to 141,837 for secession and 43,089 against. State troops and local militia in certain areas in the central and southern part of the Old Dominion had acted as a deterrent 
to any anti-secession voters, as did the system that required voters to verbally state their choice. In some places, that meant anyone voting against secession risked being lynched by their neighbors. With the statewide referendum having approved secession, the second Wheeling Convention convened on June 11th. Ninety-three delegates representing 32 western counties were certified by the Credentials Committee. These delegates were prepared to create a new state, but Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution stipulated that such an action required the parent state's approval. To get around this inconvenience, the delegates in Wheeling annulled the Richmond government, saying it had usurped the people's power. The delegates further ruled that the secession convention had been illegally convened. And, with that being the case, they went on to declare, the ordinance of secession was also illegal, and therefore the results of the May 23rd statewide referendum were not binding. Furthermore, all state offices held by secessionists were declared vacant to be filled by loyal men under a new, quote-unquote, reorganized state government. And on June 19, 1861, they passed an ordinance creating a new, reorganized government of Virginia, with Fairmont attorney Francis H. Pierpont as governor. The next day, June 20th, the delegates signed the declaration formalizing their efforts, and having done this, they crossed their fingers and hoped Washington would support their remarkable actions. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is West Virginia and the Civil War by Mark Snell. This is yet another offering in the History Press's ubiquitous Civil War Sesquicentennial series. You can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Twitter feed and Facebook page, where, for example, this past week we shared our amazement as we stumbled across a Stonewall Jackson black raincoat on eBay. Just like the one he was wearing the night he was shot. Just like he was wearing when he was shot. Uh, who knew there was such a thing? Anyway, yeah, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Also, don't forget we're moving all Strawfoot Brigade membership stuff over to Patreon. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 84 about Stoneman's raid during the Chancellorsville campaign. This past week, it looks like quite a few of you made the switch from the website to Patreon to continue with your membership supporting the podcast. So thank you for that. And it looks like there were also a few first-time members who signed up with us through Patreon. So thank you also. Yep. Uh, if you check out our page on Patreon, you'll see there are three tiers of support. All three get access to members' episodes, while the top two tiers also will get a weekly post about a topic of interest. Well, interesting to us, at least. Uh, we put up the first of these dispatches last week. And it was titled, 
Stonewall Injured in Aviation Accident, which is a true story, by the way. Well, at any rate, the easiest way to find us on Patreon is probably by going to patreon.com and then just search for Civil War Podcast. And that's about it for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next week as we continue with the story of how West Virginia became a state. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.